0: Hello and welcome to the Limbit Podcast and this special edition featuring highlights from the CSANZ 2021 scientific meeting. Joining me today is Scientific Program Director, Associate Professor James Chong and Imaging Stream Lead Professor Liza Thomas. James, congratulations on both the program and the event. Of course, with looming COVID lockdowns at the time, you had to make the move to go from a hybrid live event to virtual.
1: Yeah, it was tricky. So, you know, we we went into it. Really wanting an in-person meeting, we the feedback that we've had was that everyone was very keen for an in-person meeting. So, um, but of course, with COVID looming in the background, we we planned for at least some states not being able to 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 make it. So we had an a a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D. The plan D being full virtual, the plan A being full. Um, For in-person, and then uh, the, the, the B and C being various hybrids that would allow participation to pe- groups that were even locked down due to government restrictions. And um, we, we tried to hold out to the very last minute. There were lockdowns happening in Sydney at that time, and we, we tried to hold out, but it, it, there became a stage where it was clear that it, it wasn't able to proceed um in in person so we pulled the plug on that and and lucky we did because i think at that time um you know melbourne were locked down brisbane were locked down Um, adelaide were obviously had restrictions from these other places so it, it wouldn't have been possible so i'm glad we made the decision when we did
0: yeah that was a great few days of research and ideas presented. Uh, now you're the translational stream lead and there was an interesting session on Friday that you co-chaired looking at new technologies to reduce the need for heart transplantations. What are some of the emerging developments here?
1: Yeah so um, I, it was a great privilege to be able to get Professor Charles or Chuck as he's known Ch- Chuck Murray um, from Seattle to speak. So He's really been a world leader in this heart regeneration and stem cell field. And he um, is probably leading this area. Um, He presented um, just a bit of background. Um, I I worked with him in Seattle uh, some years ago and we reported that this technology was um, really feasible to treat end-stage heart failure, but there were some hurdles, uh, including these arrhythmias, which occurred after the stem cell-derived heart muscle was transplanted. So a lot of our efforts and his have been um, to try to get rid of these these potential arrhythmias. So he um, showed a stunning piece of work where he used gene editing technology to knock out um, four different iron or modulate four different ion channels um, in these stem cells and showed that after these gene edited stem cells were, um, were used to make heart muscle that there were no longer arrhythmias so that was that, that was a fantastic piece of work and we learned that he's uh, about to go to the clinic in the not too distant future um, and then I, I, I was fortunate to, to follow up um, from him and be able to share some of the work in that same field that we're doing here in Australia. And we showed that clinically used drugs such as amiodarone and ibabridine can also be used to, to decrease these arrhythmias. So in this field, it's an exciting time um, that we can hopefully um, see a lot of clinical trials around the world um, get started. And. Um, Nathan Palpent then talked about a a spider venom toxin that that could be used to decrease um, uh, injury after heart attacks in particular. And Chris Hayward um, from St. Vincent's rounded out the session by giving us an update on the state of the art in left ventricular assist device technology. So I think it was a great session overall.
0: There was also a session that looked at new therapies for cardiac fibrosis. What are the clinical consequences of this and what are the opportunities here for treatment?
1: Yes. Yeah. I shared that with Jason Kovacic. Um, that was a fascinating session um, about fibrosis, which clinicians um, often don't think too much about in a mechanistic way. We clinicians and cardiologists tend to think of fibrosis as, as just the bad guy that produces scar. And what we learned from that session, um, from the the, the first speaker, a, a real world-class um, expert in this area from, um, that's Nicholas frangio from New York. Um, he showed us data that we shouldn't, uh, that makes us think about fibroblasts in different ways, that there's um, a, a very heterogeneous pool. Um, there, there can be fibroblasts that have um, positive effects on heart function, as well as the others that can have a negative um, uh, effect and, and and at the present state of the art we're not quite there at being able to choose um, therapies to discern between the two. Um, so that was a real that was a real exciting talk and then David Kay who's um, an expert within fibrosis um, in around the world as well but um, um, one, one of our Australian experts gave us a, an update about the clinical, um uh, pathophysiologies um that that lend itself to to cardiac fibrosis um, he showed the different imaging modalities um and the the pros and cons that each can have with regards to fibrosis um yeah and 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 then we also had a session by um, um john o'Sullivan from um royal prince alfred um updating us on the the, some very interesting data on heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and um, um, a, an interesting finding he's had about um, uh, ketosis, ketosis that can happen within the heart.
0: I was also interested to get your thoughts on this year's joint translational session with the Australian Atherosclerosis Society. What are your highlights there?
1: Um, Peter Thompson um, gave a talk about culture scene, which appeared in a number of different sessions as well, because it's a hot area. The fact that we can repurpose a, a very old drug to, to address inflammation and, and um, cardiac outcomes. So we're, we're fortunate in Australia to have um, Peter um, with us and, and leading a lot of that culture scene um, research. So he he gave us um, an update on that.
0: And what do you think is the time right for culture scene?
1: (laughs) Uh, It's not my specific research interest, but from what I've been following, I I don't think we're there yet ready for prime time, but but there's gathering momentum. Clearly there can be effects um, um, from this non-specific anti-inflammatory drug but but the the signal that we're getting um from increased mortality from other factors that's an important one that needs to be teased out before it's ready for prime time i think
0: well thanks james for sharing your insights here it's been a pleasure catching up joining me now is professor liza thomas liza there were many great imaging sessions that ran over the event one of course that was very topical was the session looking at myocardial function post covid
2: yeah so that. COVID obviously is extremely topical and we were very fortunate to have Professor Thorad Badtson from Norway give the talk on COVID and effects on the heart. Now, what studies from around the world have shown is that in the acute phase of COVID, there does seem to be cardiac involvement in patients who have extreme symptoms. Um, there are several, as you know, there's a broad spectrum when people have COVID infection. Some can be almost asymptomatic, but most of these observations were in sick patients who were in hospital. So I need to make that definition very clear. They saw that there was a reduction in left ventricular function, both in systolic function, and also perhaps greater diastolic dysfunction, but the right ventricle was also um, affected. There was RV dilatation as well as dysfunction. Now, whether that's consequent to problems in the lung, because we do know that COVID impacts on the lung, we haven't quite teased out the indi- individual effects. And he presented studies from various uh, centers in the world showing that up to two-thirds of patients in hospital could have cardiac involvement. But what was more important was that those who had obvious evidence of cardiac dysfunction, LV and RV dysfunction, did worse. So it, it definitely had a prognostic value. I think a lot of us are still learning what this means. He also presented follow-up, so patients who are being followed up after they've had COVID. And it's really been a mixed bag of results. And the early studies done it sort of three months after having had COVID suggested that they were seeing uh, abnormalities like inflammation, edema in the myocardium, myocarditis, But longer term studies at six months have not shown significant differences, you know, in patients who've um, had cardiac involvement acutely versus not having had cardiac involvement acutely. And I think we don't have enough data to um, say this is what it is, definitely. I think the vast majority are showing resolution and improvement. Early on, when patients are unwell, it certainly does appear to have prognostic value that those who show the cardiac impairment may do worse. Now, whether it's primarily um, the effect of COVID or whether it's an effect of just the whole body being affected and the individual being more unwell, you know, has to be factored into that. So uh, the big... um, point that Professor Batson was emphasizing was we should not put too much value on an asymptomatic patient who shows some abnormality post-COVID. Because I think some of the studies were just anyone after COVID, no symptoms, let's just do an MRI. But they, they, you know there they seems to be a low incidence at Three months in some individuals, and I think of myocarditis, inflammation in the myocardium or edema. And I think more work needs to be done in this space.
0: Now, Liza, you also chaired the session on heart failure, which looked particularly at the role of imaging in subclinical disease. What were your key highlights from this session?
2: Um, yes, uh, Sunali, this is a uh, sort of emerging area. And the reason I say it's an emerging area is previously we thought of heart failure as uh, being defined by reduced cardiac function. And we referred to a particular parameter called the ejection fraction. And we we said if you had a low ejection fraction, you had heart failure. But more recently, we're aware that that ejection fraction parameter can be preserved and people can still present with symptoms and signs of heart failure. And therefore we now recognize that there's a different entity as well as the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, which is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And therefore the parameter that we've always used, which is ejection fraction, while it's useful, we can't really necessarily utilize it in that group where the ejection fraction is relatively preserved. Now, the relevance of this is with an aging population, and we find that heart failure preserved ejection fraction or HEFPEF tends to be in older individuals, and therefore its prevalence is increasing with that aging population. And what is then the go to when we can't define uh, heart failure using ejection fraction? And that was a very interesting sort of um, uh, lecture that was provided by Professor Tom Marwick, where he said we really have to look for additional parameters. It's not defined just by ejection fraction. We need to look at other markers of the ventricle. Is it uh, hypertrophied? Is it remodeled? Is there diastolic dysfunction hitherto with ejection? fraction we focus on pump function or systolic function but with diastolic assessment we're looking at the relaxation property of the of the ventricle we also now have some uh, novel uh, techniques this is with echocardiography particularly where we can measure a myocardial deformation using a particular parameter called strain. And he highlighted the utility of using strain, both in assessing ventricular function, because strain tends to be reduced, even if your ejection fraction is normal. So all of a sudden you've got a more sensitive marker to show that there's something that's not quite normal with the pump function of the ventricle. Additionally, we can apply the same parameter, the strain measurement to the left atrium as well. And this is uh, particularly useful in picking up patients with indeterminate diastolic dysfunction. So what he was alluding to really was to extend um, our analysis when we're evaluating patients and to use um, more imaging tools that are currently available to pick up patients who actually have abnormalities, which may not have been um, recognized when we use just an ejection fraction. And what's clearly demonstrated in population studies is that those with more of these abnormalities tend to do worse. So if you have associated cardiovascular comorbidities like diabetes or hypertension, and then you've got worse diastolic function or you've got worse strain, your outcome is going to be worse. So it's not just, um, as he said, a curiosity. It's actually something which has a prognostic implication as well.
0: And there was a debate too in the same session that asked whether every patient with heart failure needs a CMR evaluation What are your thoughts on this after listening to the discussion? Clearly, one has
2: to balance, you know, the health economic side of it, the accessibility together with potential small advantage. And I think what was demonstrated is that for the vast majority, as a screening test, perhaps echocardiography would suffice. There is specifically a group where there will be benefits. So if you looking at people with severely reduced heart function and you want to estimate how much fibrosis there is because of the excellent tissue characterization with MRI. It's MRI that we go to or in patients who have a thick ventricle. So on the echo, you only know that the heart muscle has increased thickness. The MRI can characterize tissues that can tell you whether You know, this is likely to be an infiltrative pathology that's causing it or is it something else? And that's where um, in that subpopulation of patients presenting with heart failure, I certainly would have to agree with Dr. Manistee that CMR
0: would trump. Great to get your call on that one, Liza. Uh, Now, I did want to ask you, too, about the sessions on cardio oncology, which featured across a number of streams. What are the key messages in terms of imaging here? So cardio-oncology is really
2: an emerging sort of area. Um, The success, I would say it's really the success of oncology with treatment of cancer patients, which is now leading us to appreciate that um, some of the therapies that they've received Uh, could have problems, particularly cardiovascular-related problems. Now, the big question is, again, similar to the first um, sort of comment I made about whether ejection fraction alone is is sufficient to pick subtle changes in cardiac function. And I think we're all beginning to realize that perhaps we need to do more than an ejection fraction because the test is good, but there's a lot of inter-observer and intra-observer variability. So using this measurement that I mentioned before, the global longitudinal strain, it tends to drop off before your ejection fraction drops off and more people are starting to monitor that. I think the other big thing with cardio-oncology is the importance of recognizing cardiac effects early that some of it is potentially treatable with cardioprotective therapy and that if you leave things for way longer, that to reverse those changes um, may be difficult. And um, the session in cardio-oncology also had an oncologist um, uh, presenting and a, a nurse practitioner because it's trying to develop workable frameworks where you have the cardiologists, oncologists, and We really need to move it forward into a different dimension, which is, um, you know, probably the primary care physician so that we have a way of surveillance of these patients where we don't just say, yep, tick, your cancer has been sorted out, but we need to look for other downstream effects as well. Again, it was the emphasis on that subclinical dysfunction, and I think for us as cardiologists just in the longer term as well. One is that acute phase when they're getting the chemotherapy. But the second phase is when you see them years on after their chemotherapy to always factor in that, oh, they've received this therapy. And is there any additive effect from having had
0: that? Associate Professor James Chong and Professor Liza Thomas, thank you both for sharing your highlights with us. We'll have more highlights from this year's CSANZ and meeting over the coming weeks, so don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get all our latest content. Until then, from the Limbic, I'm Sonali Silva. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you'll join me on the next podcast.